Well, in some ways, uh, it's been a bit of a huge task uh, this week, looking into the book uh, of Job. Uh, it's a challenging book in so many ways. It's a long book, it's got 42 chapters, that's almost as long as Genesis. It's a book with few clues to its origins, nobody knows who wrote it, and nobody even knows when it was written. Opinions vary from the time of Abraham to the time of the Babylonian exile and everywhere in between. Job is mentioned in Ezekiel, but that doesn't guarantee that the book was actually written by then, just that he was known to people by then. And it's a book with a tricky subject matter as well. Suffering. Doesn't come much bigger than that, does it? And I want to say this evening that we cannot neatly wrap that up in 20 minutes. That's not what I'm going to attempt to do uh, this evening as we look uh, into this book. We're just going to take a a little uh, paddle, if you like, uh, into this book. But it is a book that gives us a behind-the-scenes look at what is going on. It's sort of the opposite of Esther, which we looked at last week. So Esther sort of tells you uh, what's happening, but it doesn't let you know what's happening behind the scenes. But here actually lets you know exactly what's happening behind the scenes. And it tells us more about what God is doing than any human being could know without God telling them. The opening chapters feature not just Job suffering down here on earth, but conversations between God, his angels, and the devil up in heaven. And as such, it sort of throws us into all those crazy subjects of angelology and demonology and all sorts of things. So there are lots of sort of rabbit holes we could go down. And finally, it's a challenging book because it has a lot of wrong ideas. Don't get me wrong here, but when friends, uh, when Job's friends speak, they don't speak what is entirely the truth. It really is what they said, but yet 14 chapters are taken up by their false views of what is happening to Job. So just, if you're ever writing cards and stuff, beware of quoting Job. Make sure that somebody good is speaking, otherwise you can end up in all sorts of problems. But we can't cover everything uh, that we could cover in the book. But we're just going to look at three different aspects uh, of the book and get the story as we go along, just to help us think about it. So the first question we're going to ask, the first aspect we're going to look at, is this question. Will a man serve God for nothing? Will a man serve God for nothing? In the chapter that Lewis read to us, Job is presented as a righteous, blameless man. As a dear friend no longer with us once said, with Job we need to suspend our systematic theology. No one is righteous and blameless, but for the point of the story to work, we need to understand that that's how he's being given to us. That Job hasn't done anything wrong. We're told that Job feared God and shunned evil. And he's a good man, he acts almost like a priest for his family, as he regularly offers sacrifices for his seven sons and three daughters. And he's a blessed man, certainly financially. He's rich, uh, with lots of cattle and servants, and he's called the greatest of the people of the East. So he's he's a big guy. He's got a lot of stuff happening. But all of this is taken away. His children, his possessions, and eventually his health is taken away. And we're left with this question. Will Job still serve God? Job is aware that God is behind this all. So Job 1.21, the Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He understands that even though Satan is the agent of his suffering, he's aware that God is in control of what's happening. We're given more information than Job actually is given. In fact, he doesn't know that this is why this is going on. But we get given the conversation between the Lord and the devil. 
And the devil suggests, really, that Job is only serving God for what's in it for him. So we have read Job 1 verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Take it away, says the devil, and he'll soon change his tune. It won't serve you anymore. So God gives the devil permission. First to take away what he has, and then second to take away his health. And it starts to throw the question back on us here. What would we do in Job's shoes? Am I only serving God for what I can get from him? Would I still serve God if I had none of his blessings? Would I still serve God if he didn't promise to save me? Would it still serve God if it meant that my life got a hundred times harder? Is God worthy enough for that? Well, Job thinks so. Even when his wife tells him to curse God and die, he won't. He perseveres. He keeps fearing God and shunning evil. Job's version of repent and believe. He perseveres. He keeps going. But then his friends, his comforters, awful name really, with what they do, they turn up. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And rather than make things easier, really, they make things harder. And that's our second point. Is suffering always because of, I should have personal sin? No, suffering always because of personal sin. The friends turn up, and there are nuances to each of the friends, the way that they sort of talk about things, but for each of them, their basic idea is the same. If you're suffering, it's your fault. That's what they're saying. Now that sounds cruel when you put it like that, but we hear it all times, all, all sorts of different ways in our culture. What goes around comes around. Instant karma. Yet people saying, I hope he gets what he deserves. What they say to him is, if, if you're suffering, Job, it's because you've done something wrong. Repent, and all will be fine. But all the way through the book, Job protests his innocence. And chapters 1 and 2 back him up. They say he was an innocent man. That's why it's important that we suspend our systematics. The book of Job presents us with an innocent man, and we have to believe that for the book to make sense. The middle section of the book has three cycles of discussion with his comforters, and they just keep saying that he must have done something wrong. And all the way through, Job is saying, no, I've not done anything wrong. And the overall effect of this section is to weary us with debates. It wearies Job as you go through. If you read through that middle section, man, you get to the end of it, and you know you just want to take a break. At the end of all that, a young man, Elihu, steps up in chapters 32 to 37, and he rebukes Job's friends. Great. But he also seems to rebuke Job. Some people think he's great, a sort of warmer perhaps for when God comes and speaks in chapter 38. Some people think he's actually the bottom of this wearisome descent in Job's sufferings. I think whatever we think, he's certainly better than his comforters. He's certainly better than the three that we're presented with. But I don't think that's really saying much. There's no specific answer given in that middle section to the suffering of Job. It's only when God starts to speak that actually we get some form of response, some form of answer. And even then, it's not really explaining Job's sufferings. Job doesn't get to find out what's happened. 
Instead, God explains that his ways are higher than ours, and that all of them are speaking without knowledge, even Job, as they try to speak about these things. So Job 38, 4-7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It's God saying to Job, you don't know really what's going on, do you? Actually, I'm the one who knows what's going on and I'm, I'm trustworthy. Trust me with it. The one thing that we can know, though, is that Job is not suffering because he has sinned. Job shows that that link between personal sin and personal suffering is not as easy to draw as some would have us think. Innocent people sometimes suffer terribly. Guilty people sometimes prosper. And we can't link the two as we would naturally want to. Sometimes they are linked. You know, sort of natural link. You know, if you punch somebody, there's a very good chance that you'll get punched back. That's you suffering for your sin. Sometimes they are linked spiritually. So God disciplines his children in Hebrews 12. We see God judging the nations and kings all the way through the Bible. But what we cannot know is what is happening in a specific situation. Unless God specifically tells us, we can't know those behind-the-scenes things. In Job's case, he had done nothing wrong. And his comforters were wrong to try and draw that line between his suffering and some sin in his life. And that should serve as a warning to us too in our own experience and when we speak into the experience of others. We cannot say that someone is suffering because of their own personal sin. We cannot equally say that we are suffering because of our own personal sin. Job's comforters were actually of no comfort to Job by insisting that he was suffering because he was sinned. And we are no comfort to others if we try and do the same. We cannot draw that line. We don't have that much information. And that's part of what God is saying as he speaks in Job. And the ultimate example, of course, of this innocent suffering is the Lord Jesus. He suffered and yet never sinned. And Job points us forward to him as the innocent sufferer. He too suffered yet was without sin. He persevered even further than Job. He persevered even to death, even to death on the cross. Also that we might enjoy an end to suffering, an eternity with him in his Father's glory. Which brings us nicely to our last point. A tick-shaped saga. The story finishes well. After God has spoken to Job in chapters 38 to 41, Job repents in dust and ashes. Now we need to get this right. He's not repenting because of some sin that he's committed. That would undermine the whole book that we've just been reading about. That's, it's not that he's repenting of some sin that's caused him to suffer. Instead, he repents of trying to discover the why to his suffering. So Job 42, verses 1 to 6. The Lord answered, sorry, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Job gives up trying to know all that God knows. And instead he accepts that God's ways are higher than his ways. God then expresses his anger at the comforters who try to make out that they could read God's mind. So Job acts as a priest for them by offering prayers for them, and they offer sacrifices to atone for what they've done. And Job, in the end, ends up with double what he had to start with in chapter 1. So this is why it's a tick shape. He starts off really doing quite well, things go badly, and then he finishes even better off. He ends up with double what he had to start with in chapter 1. Double the sheep, double the camels, double the oxen, double the donkeys. Interestingly, not double the sons and daughters. Or does he? He gets another seven sons and another three daughters. And many have noted that really he ends up with 20. Double. Ten on earth and ten in heaven. We're told that his daughters are the most beautiful in the world. I reckon Job must have written this bit. Every, every father thinks that their kids are, you know, oh, they're so handsome, so beautiful. Listen to the names that he gave them. Their names translate as hot, cinnamon, and mascara. And we think some of our names look crazy these days. Hot, cinnamon, and mascara. Yeah, that's beautiful women, isn't it? Ooh. Uh, and Job lives another 140 years, long enough to see four generations of his family. I think this is a clue that we're going back to the time of Abraham when people lived uh, a lot longer. And notice that in the closing chapters there are some things that are missing. There's no Satan. So we don't get a repeat of what happens at the beginning. There's no spouse. Now, <laughs> don't hear me wrong here. Um, but in, that, in the beginning, she's the one who tells him to curse God and die. She's obviously still there because he's got more kids. But actually, there's none of that idea of a wife trying to lead him astray. There's no suffering. We're not told of any of the things that happened before. So this world, at the end of it, that he has, is better than the one that he had before. And in this, it provides us with a a tick-shaped story. It starts well, gets bad, ends better. And if you think about it, that's the shape of our world's history. That's our world story. It starts well in Eden gets bad as sin enters the world, but finishes up better in the new creation. So this story really is the story of our world, our own story, really. But the time in which we live, so to speak, is still at the bottom of the tick. We live in the time of suffering, the suffering stage. But unlike Job, who didn't know what was coming, we can be certain of the outcome. Not in this life, we're not promised that everything will be hunky-dory, but in the bigger picture of the life to come. We're not guaranteed that in this life suffering will end and we'll come out on top. Look at the Apostle Paul, or indeed any of the Apostles or Prophets, which of them got rich and lived healthy, outwardly prosperous lives. Hebrews 11 tells us about the Prophets. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And yet in the midst of that, they could look forward to the city not made by man's hands. What lies ahead is so much better than what has gone before. We were hearing about it this morning, weren't we? Revelation 7. Therefore they are before the throne of God, who serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. 
That's the end of our tick, if you like. And Job is there in his tick shape to show us that this is coming. So in the midst of suffering and pain, let's keep going. Let's keep doing what Job did, fearing God and shunning evil, knowing that the Lord will not forsake us. Let's pray that we might have his patience, the patience of Job, as it's called, in the midst of great troubles. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you for the book of Job. Father, thank you that um, suffering is not always a result of our sin. Father, thank you that there is grace, there is forgiveness. And Father, thank you that there is that wonderful future for all who believe. Father, thank you that the end is so much better than the beginning. And it's all because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. So help us to look to him who suffered in our place, the innocent sufferer, and put our trust in him alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.